Shout out to Snowball, our incredible new sponsor, a private community where top entrepreneur investors share private deal flow, wins, tough lessons, strategies, get advice, and so much more. Check out www.snowballclub.com. Let's grow together with Snowball. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Austin King. He is the co-founder of Steel River. I look forward to this conversation today. Thank you for being here today, Austin. Thanks for having me, Ron. Great to be here. Cool. Funny, I, I see people. I have a few friends named Austin, and it, you know, was it because of the city of Austin, or did you guys have a? Is that a? Is Austin I don't know if my or? parents have that much creativity. <laughs> <laughs> I love Austin. It's one of the reasons I always ask is because, like you know, it's one of those few places where you know you don't have to convince me to go. Well, tell me about you. Tell me about how you got into this space, and we'll, we'll start with you. And then we'll talk about Steel River and uh, kind of what Steel River is. But let's just start off with who is Austin King and how did you end up in the mergers and acquisitions world? Yeah, I got pretty lucky, to be honest. It kind of stumbled my way into it. I actually grew up on a small farm um, out in Pennsylvania. The farm work was not for me, so I was looking for a ticket out and had a lot of support um, from my family in doing so. Actually, was an ice hockey player, and that took me around the world for a little while. And then decided that wasn't the dream came crashing down um, and NHL wasn't in the future. So the time to start working on a real future. So after college, um, I tried to work at Bond Hedge Fund for a little while. And then that definitely wasn't for me. Just watching numbers move on a screen. Tried the, the management consulting route. And that's where I met my best friend, co-founder, business partner, Eric Factor. We became really good friends through that process. I never really met anyone that worked harder than him. So we kind of had in the back of our mind that one day we wanted to start something together. A couple of years went by. Um, the consulting thing was great, but actually was fortunate enough to get recruited to a private equity firm out on the West Coast, where I was able to cut my teeth. I learned a ton. I couldn't imagine learning anymore in a short period of time until you kind of start your own business, but was able to build some great skills and I don't know what we were thinking, but in the middle of the pandemic, I think we had a little bit too much time on our hands. <laughs> so we we're like, oh, why not start a business and leave our jobs while the world is ending? Um, but Eric and I got together and he actually comes from the much stronger operational background. Um, and so he had a lot of the gaps that I had in my own game. So we thought that if we got together and one plus one might equal three when mm -hmm. building something. So in 
June of 2020, we actually left our jobs and formed Steel River as a permanent holding vehicle to go and pursue building a long-term strategy in the industrial services space. So industrial services, you told me a little bit before the show, you even got something very clear, probably closer to my hometown than anybody's ever mentioned here on the show. We always say Tulsa uh, as a reference, but you were in a little town called Kiefer, uh, which is probably only about 15, 20 miles from where I grew up. But yeah, so what is Steel River? What are you acquiring and kind of what is what have you learned? As, let's just start with that. What is Steel River? What are you acquiring? And we'll get into some of these lessons learned as you've been doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a wild ride and the vision has evolved over time and it's become more clear. It's probably more clear today than it's ever been. But our thought process was we wanted to find businesses that supported the backbone of America. There was There's a trend going away from industrial services and a lot of the founders that we work with are looking for the next generation to carry on the legacy and build these businesses that actually support and make America run. We actually, years ago, were looking at it and saw there's this start. COVID was really the first kind of wake up call where people saw supply chains break down and it was hard to get products and resources to the U.S. And it was a great opportunity for us where there was this macro trend of coming back onshore, reigniting the manufacturing space. And then we also love like the regulated industries where there's like in our crane business, OSHA is the regulating body where it's a natural engine to your business where you're, you're going to be there. You have a baseline of business that gives you a strong platform and foundation to build around. And then the other opportunity that we saw was a lot of times these blue collar businesses can be sleepy and it was a chance to really come in, get fired up around it, build a new culture, a new mindset of these can actually be fast growing businesses. If you bring in the right people, you build the right team, and then you give them the right reasons to stay and incentives. And um, so we saw just an opportunity where there even aging founder base, there's a lot of opportunity for acquisitions. And uh, then there's an opportunity for organic growth. If we put some of the things that we had learned from the other businesses we were involved in and um, those things have played out really nicely. So give me a scope of things. How many businesses have you acquired? Yeah, so we acquired our first, the first space that we fell in love with was the overhead crane space. We bought a business called Crane Tech from the original founder who um, actually is still um, someone that invests with us today. And he's been a great partner for us, but he was looking to retire. So we bought Crane Tech in February of 21, shortly after raising what we would call something like an evergreen fund or a permanent hold co where we have committed capital vehicle, but a long-term horizon, there's no fund length or have to return capital. Our investors are with us and thinking in years or thinking in decades rather than years. So um, that was the first foray into the crane space since, so as of today, we've done 11 acquisitions. Nine wow. of them were around that first crane platform. And then we've slowly started branching out from there. We actually just closed a business this past Friday that was uh, branching into mobile cranes and aerial lifts. So cranes and aerial lifts and industrial support. So 
I've seen those. I've, I mean, I've looked at a lot of manufacturing companies and stuff, and you got the big steel I beams that go above stuff, and they've got the what do they call it, gantry cranes or whatever that yeah. slide along that. Or hey, I'm in, I'm in press rod. That's more than what people usually. We usually have to explain that it's not the tower cranes on the side of the building. I almost bought a. I got a yes from a, a co- concrete manufacturing company that did concrete products. They made. Uh, storm shelters and everything. Unfortunately, it was going to be a little bit of a turnaround. They owed some people the money. The IRS was one of them. And the IRS and the bank both said, yeah, you're not transferring assets until you pay us off. Because we were going to just assume their debt and take over that. And uh, they never challenged the IRS. So one of the things we were doing is hiring a forensic CPA and that had an right. IRS uh, lawyer on staff. And we were going to go through and redo their books, make them right, because their books were really messed up, and then go to the IRS and negotiate a lower settlement. They owed them still, like, they owed them a lot more before, but they have been paying them down for a year and a half. They still owed, like, 960 k But they were doing, on a bad year, they did $15 million. On their best year, they did almost thirty in revenue, and they were just poorly, poorly managed. One of the owners was a nurse, and the other one was, I would say she's supposed to be a bookkeeper, but she was horrible at it before they got thrown into daddy's business, you know, Hey, we need you to run dad's business. He's got to step away. And it was grandpa's business before that. So, but, uh, no, they had trucks even that had those cranes on at the big entry still being sure, going out yeah. to lift a storm cellar up off the ground and put it on the truck and then, then put it, drop it down into the, into the, the hole for the, for the insertion. So I'm familiar with some of it because I've looked at some industrial uh, facilities that had them in operation. The cool yeah. thing with your businesses is those things are, if they're OSHA compliant, they have to be inspected occasionally and they have to be upgraded because the OSHA changes their standards every once in a while. So they can't, they just don't get go old and rusty up there. They have to be well-maintained and working. So that's kind of an interesting it's, space to be in. It's been really good for us. We've been very fortunate and yeah, you're right. Uh, we try to focus on production customers mm-hmm. where they need these cranes to run day in and day out, um, heavy duty, high cycle. So it's the inspections are the base business that gives us a good base of recurring revenue. Right. And then the repairs and the maintenance off of that. And then we've now gotten into building new cranes as well. So it's been, we're trying to be a turnkey solution and it's been, we've really caught it at the right time. And we just have a phenomenal team that has been uh, allowed us to grow. That company I was looking at got really good at building their own trucks. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I like that, but <laughs> They would get, we'll just order a truck and they had engineers on staff that would put the I-beams on there and the crane. Now they buy all the parts, of course, but they'd build it. Yeah. They said the difference between, you know, it was like a hundred grand difference between hey, sending the truck off and having somebody else put it on there and do it. And then cost them thirty to $50,000 in parts and stuff, depending on how heavy duty they wanted to make it to build it themselves. So they were, really there was a big difference there. But I can see that would be like, that would be a cool entry. You know, it had about the concrete company. That would be a cool thing. Like, okay, we use these cranes all the time. Well, what does that look like? Cause I like to look at companies and look at what the surrounding businesses are. Who are my suppliers? Who do I work with all the time and do that? Do you guys take a look at, okay, we're in the crane business. One of the things that they all use is steel cable. Who's a good steel cable manufacturer that we could go acquire at some point. Yeah, it's, it, you bring up a great point. Like right now, as we think about Steel River, it's building this comprehensive lifting solutions platform. Mm-hmm. So our, as we think about Steel River is we have shared services at the highest level where you have IT, HR, accounting, and we actually are starting to build out sales at the mm-hmm. highest level. And then you have your different divisions. Crane Tech is a division. The business we just acquired, WECO, is another division. And you bring up one of the businesses that we're looking at right now would be a rigging and wire rope business. So you have, these are products we're using across the whole platform. And 
it's just a natural fit to be able to have that in there. So something where you'd have a third leg to the stool here is this lifting business. So it fits really well and you bring up a great point. A lot of these, I didn't think about that, but rigging could be a good line of business too. Cause a lot of times in these manufacturing facilities, they need to get stuff somewhere that isn't a direct line of sight and it takes rigging and, and special setups to get, you know, get totally. to move, to move heavy stuff around. So a rigging company would be a, a great, addition. So that's, that's a cool idea there. So what have you learned in the process of, you know, you say, you said you added 11 on, are you total 12 acquisitions or total 11? If you count the original one, you're at 12. So you've got 12 acquisitions. There's got to be some lesson learned, right? You, you went into this with some expectation. You came from a background of private equity. You had seen it before, and you probably thought it, that's how it worked. But when you start messing with these smaller, medium to size mom and pop businesses, yeah. things change a little bit. So what I, I'm interested in, in seeing, what was the initial expectation when you did before you did your first acquisition, and what have you learned since then? Yeah, some lessons are obviously harder than others, but it's been it's been a very fun ride. And... One of the biggest lessons that we learned, and it was a shift in mindset, and this was part of the reason for getting out of the private equity world, is like there's just a lot of numbers and you're doing this financial analysis and there is an element of financial engineering to it. When you're building for the long term, it took us a little more time to figure out how to underwrite culture and that fit where it's like, does this fit right with the core business or how are the people going to come together? Because we we will not underwrite any cost-cutting like people synergies when we bring the businesses together. Um, we don't think that's the right thing to do just when we're focused on maintaining founder legacy. We want to make sure that we keep the people. That's why we want to be the buyer of choice if we're actually living up to that. But the biggest one was like understanding, okay, if the culture is not right, even if it looks right on paper financially, you may need to walk away from it if the cultural piece is not there. And that is not that's not something they teach you in the private equity world. And so that was, we, we learned that lesson early with one of our early acquisitions that checked out financially, but culturally the teams did not come together the way and we had attrition. And it was something that we now spend a lot of time on and a huge chunk of our diligence period is getting to know the people and how it will all fit together post-close. It's interesting. I've interviewed close to 200 people by this point. And the underlying, I did a, a couple of shows recently where people were interviewing me. And it was like, what did you learn after interviewing 200 people? One of the top lessons is private equity. Once you hit the private equity world, it's a numbers game, meaning you're looking at financials. And I would say anytime you got private money involved, anytime your cap table, you got more than two or three investors, numbers start becoming more important. But for most of these business owners that you're working with, they're second generation, first generation They've owned it 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I'm, that one I was telling you about, I've been in the family for like 60-something, 70 years. It's not, it, numbers are the least important thing to them. They, they've got a number they need to retire maybe, but what's going to happen to a safe pair of hands and the rapport you build with that home, or that business owner is way more important than the number side of it to them. And I can see that culture the people side of it, it's way more important at this level. Anything probably lower than a $10 million valuation of a company, the people side of it is so much more important. And it's building rapport with that, that seller, building rapport with that leadership team. Is that something you guys learn too? Is like you've really got to get inside and learn who's running this and who's still going to be there when, when it's transactions complete? Absolutely. You actually brought up another point that's really interesting about like having a longer cap table and like 
that was actually one thing as we came up with the idea for Steel River and being this permanent holding vehicle, actually selecting your investors and who is going to be along for that ride for a long time was actually something we spent a lot of time on. And I'm really glad we did. After three years in, I couldn't ask for more from our board and our investors because you're spot on. Like if the cap table gets big, there's a lot of dollars at stake. You need to have really good alignment. And so I'm very grateful we spent the time up front to do that. But so that you brought something up that I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely it. And then we we will spend time. I mean, when you're buying some of the businesses we buy, they have 15, 20 people. You lose one person and the whole thing could come crumbling down if you're, everything's around this one linchpin of a service manager or branch manager. If you're not retaining that person, you bought nothing. So one of the strategies that we've used is actually we've created an equity-based plan where all the way down to the branch manager level, we are offering equity up in the business because we want to push equity as far out into the field as we can. We think it drives the right behavior. We want these people to feel like their fingerprints on it. They're driving day-to-day business and they're actually creating a ton of value and we want to see them win and succeed long-term. We're trying to work on ways to actually create liquidity in the short and medium term here. Um, So it'd be, for us, it's a huge piece of what we're doing now, just given the success where hopefully some of these branch managers and the people in the field can get some significant liquidity and chunks of money that they would have not gotten at other businesses and other blue collar services. So you're totally right. You got to evaluate those people and then make sure they're incentivized. Our strategy is to pay above average wages and then create a culture that's worth staying for, that they feel like they're building something and it's something they're proud of. I was going to ask you if the liquidity you're looking for is for the employees or for the investors, right? So it's not like it's for the investor, like the, the people you give equity. I've worked at quite a few startups in my day and, you know, some of them you look at and go, yeah, the options aren't going to mean anything because this isn't going to make it to a public company, <laughs> right? You know, that said, to give somebody equity in a company when you tell them you're a long-term holding company is less interesting you know if you're not going to take up public or do something like that right so they can get the liquidity in the, in, you know in, into that so i'm glad that you're considering ways that what do you do to train it sounds like you want them to take an ownership stake right i have a similar model i'm working on i'm looking to do one or two deals in the near future and what i'm looking to do is take companies who the owner would love to see their employees end up owning it but they don't know how to path to get there because not every employee is a great business can run a business yeah. greatly. I actually have interviewed the guys who wrote the book, uh, the, the great game of business. I don't know if you've ever read that one, but their whole, they have a system and it's, it works hand in hand with the OS and other systems, but it teaches employees how to be great employee owners. Uh, it teaches them the basics of financial, the financials and pretty much the goal of them is to teach each employee how their job, interacts with the, the bottom line, the financials. And uh, I think it's a key step if you're ever going to become an ESOP, uh, employees, uh, or the employees actually own and operate the company. So what do you do inside of these companies that allow these, you know, that equity stake to mean something, to have them take and feel ownership? Is there a, a, a method to the madness there? Yeah, honestly, uh, you it's probably a better question for my business partner, Eric, who spent a ton of time thinking about this. But when we get together and we're evaluating the people, it really starts with the leadership team we've assembled. So we break it down with you have like kind of your corporate team that's supporting the organization. And then you have 
your regional managers, branch managers, service manager, and so on. Um, but it really starts with those regional managers um, where we, it's our job to hire and find the best in class talent and then have them push that out into the field where it is they're getting the right coaching and mentoring because we're never going to be able to spend the time with 15 different locations that they deserve. But we actually, on our end, like as in the finance seat, we produce P&Ls consistently, spend the time with each manager to go through their P&L on a monthly basis and like, hey, this is how gross profit works. And these are the levers you have within your gross profit. All of our branch managers are bonused off of gross profit. So we want them to feel like they have no, they know what levers are they have control over so that they can see how it actually affects their bonus and then they actually see ultimately we'll see bottom line and then we actually show a share price to them as well where they can see hey i have x numbers of shares this is my share price this is my equity value and then at the regional manager level going one up from them they are bonused off of ebitda so they are the ones who need to keep opex in check and they need to go through okay well, this is our spend this is our budget and then that's a different, to your point, that's a different level of knowledge and experience. And I just can't, our regional managers are top notch and they're running their own divisions and running their own business essentially. Um, so it, it just starts with finding the right person. And that was our strategy early on was like, let's just go and find the best talent we can and get a place where they want to be and they believe in the vision. And now I would put like our management team like up against any other in the industry. We're very fortunate that they believed in us and, and gave Steel River and Crane Tech a chance and now WECO as well. Awesome. So the one of the things so you've got you've got that whole management structure in. I love that you give them kind of a PL responsibility and help them with that. Cause it's one thing to say you have PL responsibility and then tell them to go figure it out because that's the big I'll even go as far as most business owners get lost when you show them a PL. Right. They just it's just not something they operate on. We all should. We should all see our income statements and our profit and loss and understand our balance sheet and everything like that. But I don't know how many business owners I, I ask for, hey, can I have your balance sheet and your income statement? And they kind of go deer in the head like, well, you'll probably have to call my tax guy for that. I was like, yeah, your tax guy's not going to have it. Do you have an accountant by chance? Right. So, so it's so funny, Ron, that you say that, because now that we've worked with the team and like like now they now they want more information now that they have like. Yeah. The team is like they're once they see how it ties to the real world, ties to the financials, they're like, okay, I get that. How do I pull that lever? And now it's our job that it's okay. They want more info. Like, what are the they actually understand KPIs? And now they're like, give me more data. Give me something tangible that I can use to get drive actions and insights off of. So that's one thing we're now building out at the whole co is to bring on more operational excellence to actually support them because now they're armed with information they know how the business ties together now it's our job to get them more information to make even more informed decisions so like once they get a taste and it starts clicking these guys are phenomenal at like putting that together they're technically sound they just need to see how it ties together but yeah now they're hungry for more now it's my job to get more kpis out there awesome awesome sounds like you guys are either following a similar game plan to that that book i was telling you about the great game of business it was uh, they've, they're in the industrial space. They've acquired over 60 plus companies when I interviewed them and a lot of them wow. are turnarounds. They do like, they buy a lot of remanufactured parts companies. Like they yeah. have companies that rebuild turbochargers for tractors and, and trucks and stuff. And they have companies that do all that. And honestly, it's probably one of the tightest margin companies I'd ever seen. They run like oh, a two to 3% profit margin. Oh, wow. And that's normal in their industry because it's very competitive. I look at things and go, you know, 
I'm not interested. I, I need room to mess up. I don't consider myself an awesome an operator. So if it's got, I'm looking for stuff, 25, 30, 40% profit margins. That's why I have a pest control company. It's why I buy digital media assets because they're insanely profitable and you have a lot of room to, to, to goof up and to not do perfect and still pay everybody and run it. What is the, in the crane operating business and the crane business, do you mind saying kind of what that profit margin normally could be if it's running well? Yeah. Yeah, you're seeing a wide range and like uh, similar to a lot of these industrial services business, you're going to see anywhere from 10 to 20% profit margin and the guys doing 20% are running it very tight operationally. 10, you probably have a little more manufacturing component and you're not running it as tight. We've seen some run up to 25%, but they're running it super lean and they're probably mostly service over, on those. Mostly service and they're probably running it like it's probably over earning a little bit. They're probably running it a little too tight. And like, it's like our target is somewhere between eight, like we're running somewhere around 18 to 20%. Like we run it, we try to run it efficient. And the probably the, the biggest challenge we have right now within the holding margins is um, our business this past year um, grew 50% organically. So to maintain the growth level and maintain the margins, like you're doing a dance constantly and trying to hire ahead of the curve while maintaining margins, which makes it, that's a delicate, delicate game to play. Now, I didn't ask this beforehand, and it's okay to tell me no. Can we talk numbers? What's the biggest company you've acquired as far as either acquisition value or the revenue value of what it was when you bought it? Yeah, we're buying it like, so it, new businesses are buying in that 15 to 20 million revenue range. And then add-ons, like our sweet spot is probably between five to seven million of revenue. That's bigger than I thought it was. That's bigger than a lot of the guys that come on the show are playing. Kind of the, the realm I'm looking for as far as the, my goal is, I think there's a lot of companies out there and I'll kind of share this with you because you might stumble across one. I think there's a lot of companies out there. They'd love to see the owners, uh, the employees end up owning it, but they know they're not ready. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe they have a pressing need to sell, whether it's divorce or sickness or retirement or whatever it is, but they just, they don't have the three to five years it's going to take to train the employees to be a great employee run company. I'll go in and, and, and actually I have a team. We'll come in, train those employees that we'll train them. I'm going to hire the guys out to do the great game of business. They have an educational side, come in, teach the employees how to run it great by themselves. And then I'll commit to selling a large portion of it, 70 to 80% of it back to the employees in an ESOP. So they end up owning and running and fulfilling the, the original owner's goal is to have the, the employees yeah. own what they helped him create. But, you know, in a timeline that maybe that owner can't do. Have you guys looked at what, what is your long-term? I mean, I know you're going to long-term hold. When you say a long-term hold, we're talking 15, 20 years, you're going to go public or there's always got to be an exit plan of some sort because you won't live forever. Every business has an exit, right? I yeah. did a big long article on this. There's only two businesses that have ever made it past 500 years, right? Ever. Cool. There's a pub and, a, and, a, and a, uh, I don't remember if it was Japanese or Chinese a company that would make uh, temples. Uh, other so. than those two, I don't think anything's ever made it past about 600, 700 years. So eventually this thing has to, something happens. What is the goal here? Uh, yeah. Um, w luckily, my business partner and I are, are in our early 30s. We're on the younger side of things. Um, so we, we think, we're trying to think in a 30-year plan here. For us, um, the access to capital is not a problem. Um, so I don't think that going public is on the table. Um, I think going public is like if you need uh, liquidity, but in the private, similar to the private equity world, like secondaries are continue to get more and more popular, these continuation type vehicles. And 
for now, it's uh, we actually just can, we're wrapping up a fundraise to bring on additional capital into the hold co as we do more deals. And we are actually continuing to move up market in the deal size that we're doing, especially as we become more and more sophisticated within these industries. Like the minnow, the swallow, minnow swallows the whale strategy gets more and more interesting once we have, we feel like we have a strong operational playbook and we can actually go and underwrite something more aggressive on the larger side. But for now, like, I don't think the ESOP is the path for us. We bought ESOPs and we've worked with them, but we will continue to grant equity and build the build ownership within this. But for the at least the next somewhere 20 to 30 years, we might continue to recap the business with different financial partners along the way. But that looks probably like Eric and I at the helm in some shape or form. And I do think at a certain point when you get up to like 500 million of revenue, call it like, Eric and I might not be the best operators. That's a different professional CEO skill set that I don't, I candidly say I probably don't have that skill set. I mean, we honestly take a lot of pages out of the Danaher playbook mm-hmm. and we draw a lot of inspiration from them. Very impressed by what those guys accomplished. I mean, it's one of the best stories out there. And I mean, if you look at Danaher, the Rawls, they stepped out and became chairman, et cetera, and brought in top level management. So maybe that's an, op- an option. And I don't really have an, 30 years is a long time to think about it. But yeah, right. I don't, and maybe going public in 30 years is the option. I don't know. But I do, right now, the ESOP conversation, we haven't had that one. But not to say that our employees wouldn't be ready for it over time. Hey there, Hot Exit family. Today, I'm thrilled to talk about Snowball, our incredible new sponsor. This community is more than just an investment hub. It's a place where growth is holistic. A private community where top entrepreneur investors share private deal flow, wins, tough lessons, strategies, get advice, and so much more. Snowball is a network rich with like-minded, experienced entrepreneurial minds, including investors, founders, CEOs, and doers, all dedicated to meaningful growth. Snowball threads are like a daily masterclass. This isn't just about financial success. It's about enriching your entire life. If you're looking for a community that supports your entire entrepreneurial journey with shared wisdom and collective support, check out www.snowballclub.com. I believe their approach to compounded growth in wealth, health, network, and relationships could be the game changer you've been seeking. Let's grow together with Snowball. It would be if what you're doing, if you're, what you're doing now is kind of with the great game of business, teaching them how their day-to-day operations impact the profit and loss of the company. Uh, and I mean, if you read the book or listen to the audio book, it'll even go down to the you know level of big manufacturing company or something. I don't remember if it was manufacturing or what they did, but they started realizing that rolls of toilet paper were going out and they, they actually had, they assigned somebody to, to figure out this because it was considerable. It was big enough that I think they had uh, 1,500 to 2,500 employees, some big number of employees. So if you imagine like somebody's siphoning off a huge chunk of that supply, it was hundreds of dollars. And uh, they just by, you know, understanding profit and loss and everything, the employees themselves started looking for, okay, where is this going, right? This is a weird spin. Why are we spending an extra few hundred dollars a month now when we don't have any more employees? What are we feeding these guys kind of thing? But uh, I like that you guys are, you're, you're, down, you're going down the path. You don't need an exit to, at this stage in the game, right? Yeah, we, we do have investors. I mean, we have some great, like a lot of our investors are like family offices or high net worth right. individuals that don't need their capital back, which is why there's such a great partnership. 
and they were bought into building a permit hold co. So they're, they're not putting any pressure on us. It's been great to have them. They've been great thought partners, but we do have to think about them and how we actually handle that and get the, our fiduciary duty is to make sure we create the maximum value for them as well. So that's always on our mind and making sure we take care of them as well, along with the employees and find the right balance between the two. If you get to the point where you're paying quarterly dividends to them and they're making a good return on their investment, they're, they're, they're fat and happy, right? That's what they're looking for. And be honest, I've talked to quite a few family offices. They're looking for stability, strength, long-term, and not necessarily double-digit returns as much as the fact is their money's in safe hand and, and, and it's growing, right? They're more interested in, I've seen some people go, hey, we'll take a, a 5 or 6% return if it's year over year. If it's growing, it's safe, and we know. The other thing is cool about family offices is most of them want to invest considerably more money than your average investor would. Like your average investor might like, yeah, I'll give you 25 grand or 50 grand or 100 grand. You might find one, so I'll give you a million. I've talked to many of the uh, private offices, the big family offices through the show and through uh, through one of those roll-ups we were looking at. Like one of, the, one of them just told us, we won't touch anything if it's under 25 to $50 million. We're just not interested, right? It doesn't move our needle. They have an interesting, unique problem that many people, they have more issues putting their money to work than getting it back. It's quite the problem to have. So if you've got a safe place for them to put it in, and it's working, it's growing, it's, you're showing them progress, you're showing them dividends, or their money is earning money, they're going to be happy. So I, I love that approach. One of the reasons I haven't raised funds is my background was real estate, and it was all short term. Everybody, you know, I've ever, you know, loaned me money, like they got it back in six months, right? So all the investors are interested, like, I'm interested in what you're doing. It's like, cool, can you hold off for about three to five years? Oh, no, no, because there's a, we, I taught that. I taught real estate investing, and I even taught some of my private lenders. I, you know, they would come in, they had a lot of money, they didn't know what private lending is, and I teach them about the velocity of money. And the velocity of money is you loan it, and you loan it out at you know, 8%, but you get it back in three months, and you get to do it again, right? Or you get to do this, so you get to turn it over and over and over again, and that's the velocity of it. The longer, like we don't, like when we started looking at it, like we're not the first people to come up with this, but it's like you suffer so many deal fees, taxable events, you suffer so much leakage every time the business trades hands. And like we spend all of our time, we, we've reinvested every dollar back into the platform. So like it, when you can see the equity value growing the way it is, like it's hard not to put every dollar back into it. It's a different, it's a different beast. Um, tell me about the, like, Kind of what's your next acquisition look like? Are you guys continuing to do bigger and bigger ones? Or do you just continue like look regional? Uh, what's the strategy you're going with? Uh, I know out of all these acquisitions are, are you know, I know there are one in Tulsa. Where are they kind of, are they, like you told me you were looking at something in Texas. I won't say this city because yeah. we don't give it, a, you know, I don't know if I have permission to, but uh, what is the, the strategy you're going with here? It's starting to get really interesting because it, and our, our biggest effort right now is to, grow the the steel river team and to add top level managers what i was getting into is that we're actually building out the hold co team and adding some key members to help us accelerate and improve our velocity of doing more deals broadening our range of deals that we can do and integrate them effectively so we're actually have a couple different strategies where we're looking for new platform so-called businesses that will become divisions and sister companies to crane tech and WECO, like we mentioned on the rigging front. And then we're also looking to add in a, a crane training, industrial training platform that will ultimately help train. You have offer training to our customers, but then also train internally. So it's a really nice piece of the puzzle to have. 
So those are some of like the platform strategies. And then we're looking to expand like Crane Tech has grown into a national brand now where we're have acquired into a lot of our core markets and actually entered De Novo into a few, but looking to do crane overhead crane add-ons of, a, of any size or scale across the board, any region, any market. And then the mobile and aerial lift side is a newer business for us, but looking to do some more strategic acquisitions early to help bolster that platform and expand their reach. That business is mostly West Coast based. So looking to expand geographically, hopefully into some contiguous states, but then we're trying to overlap the businesses and co-locate them. So we're trying to broaden the horizon, but stay tight within that overall lifting solutions type platform. It made me think, I was like, like I said, I, the reason I run a podcast is I'm insanely curious. I've always got like my gears turn all the time. I always, I'm the guy that can walk into a coffee shop and end up sitting down with the owner. My wife's like, what, how do the owners like sit down with you and tell you everything about their business? I was like, I don't know. It's just, I, I attract that. And it's cause I'm curious. I'm intriguingly curious about it. And the thing that I'm curious here is, it just hit me. There's tech hubs, right? The San Francisco, New York kind of start has some tech now. Austin's definitely a tech hub. I never thought about before tech hubs even existed. There were manufacturing hubs, right? There were Absolutely. cities and towns that were really big, big into manufacturing. Chicago reminds you know, or the uh, you know the car manufacturer Detroit comes to mind. Now those are gone. Do you guys map that out and go? These are the manufacturing hotspots. So if we have a strategically located asset here. We can cover this whole area and they all need cranes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're spot on. And honestly, it's been an eye-opening experience. Like there's towns that you look at some of these old manufacturing hubs that you're talking about. We have an office um, located just outside of Gary, Indiana, and it's largely a ghost town now and has fallen off from its heyday. But like you can see what just a colossal production that they had coming out of there. And the whole town and area ran off of this one steel mill. So it is, it's interesting to see like how that developed over time. But as we like, Texas is obviously growing like crazy. We opened three new offices in Texas just in 23. Um, and like that Houston market alone is like, uh, for that area, like Houston's the largest crane market in the world. So we've been spending a lot of time investing a lot of dollars and resources there. So we definitely look at that. We started on the West Coast. The it's California particularly was a great launching point for us just because it's more regulated. So it gives you that bigger foundation to run off of. Obviously, there's some dynamics in California that make it more challenging to do business but the regulation makes it worthwhile. Um, so now we've been spending a lot of time going to more of those growth markets that you're talking about that are heavy manufacturing. We've been spending a lot of time in Tennessee. A lot of the auto manufacturers are going there and all the ancillary that goes around that, the new electric car plants. So we spend a lot of time mapping that out and where do we really want to invest our dollars and be smart about that. Interesting. One of the things that come to mind when you're talking about some of these, like we mentioned Detroit and some of the stuff, is it takes the specialized skills to put those cranes up, right? The installation is, is a, as a business, yeah. but I'd also think that taking them back down would be an OSHA requirement to have a trained operator, remove a crane from a building. If you don't need it anymore, because you're talking about big steel I beams and heavy, yeah. I think it takes somebody just as trained to put one up as it would take to turn it down. Do you guys do removal services or anything? We do. We, we try to offer that full turnkey suite. And like one of the things we invested in early was, um, the safety and training program where it, it is a dangerous trade. I mean, you have people working at heights with high voltage, like it is, it, it's something that you need to be very careful. And we try to actually create a very strong safety culture where, Hey, don't, 
if it looks wrong and it's too risky, like you're never going to catch heat from us for saying, Hey, that job was too dangerous. Like the downside risk is too high. And like, that's the one thing that Eric and I lose sleep over is like having to make that phone call that someone's not going home to their family tonight. So safety is like the number one thing that we breathe, but at the same time it has to happen. Someone has to do it. And so the things that you're talking about is like having the right lifting plan, having the right map layout, do the safety stand down. Did we take into consideration all the things that can go wrong when we're going to actually going up or going down? Like a lot of things to do your point, like you're talking ton, like tons and it's things can go wrong very quickly. Yeah, you're putting a multi-ton yeah. steel beam across an entire yeah. factory, right? And or multiple ones, right? And I've seen these things, and uh, like you look at them, and they're marvels. Like, how do they get that up there and get it working? I grew up in a in a manufacturing plant where we had them. My dad was uh, worked in a paint manufacturing plant, okay. and we used those big cranes to move tubs of paint around, yeah. right? And to lift those tubs of paint up onto pouring platforms and stuff, and just to look at those things and go, somebody put that up there, installed it. I never would have thought of it then, but now I'm sitting there going back in my mind uh, being a teenager working part-time in the summer in that plant and uh, yeah we use forklifts to move some of the stuff but we had yeah. those gantry cranes over a few of the areas too and somebody built that thing so. I, i'm amazed at what our like our team can do like our installers and our technicians the way those guys their brain works and they can see how it's going to go up there like you go up there and i'm sitting there i'm like we're going to figure this out and like we, our team on the ground is like oh yeah we're going to no problem uh, so it's amazing to see how those guys work and what they can actually get in the air because sometimes I, we have one branch manager out in Indiana who's like, his first answer is no problem. Like he's got a creative mind, like he's taking yeah. the roof off the building and put dropping the crane in over top. We're lucky to have the guys we have because at first I'm like, just make sure we're, we're safe because it's incredible what they're able to do. I didn't think about that. Like, yeah, if you got something big enough, you just have to take the roof off and rebuild the roof. That's an interesting uh, <laughs> Sometimes uh, it's the path of least resistance. It's crazy. Yeah. I have actually two friends. One of them is one of the guys that works for me. He used to be a crane operator in one of those steel mills that got bought by China and shut down. But he used to get a bonus if nobody died in the factory within so many days. So every 60 days, they got a big, and some of his bonuses, like he made the whole year and nobody died. He like as the crane operator, he was the operator. And I think he paid wow. him. It was uh, he's a good guy. I love him to pieces. He's my cousin, but he got like an eighth grade education, but he passed his GED and, and he became a crane operator. And that thing was the highest paid job he ever had. They were paying in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They were paying him something like 80 bucks an hour to sit in that thing. But it was oh, in I a steel it. mill. It was a steel mill moving molten steel. And uh, he used to tell me, I get a bonus if I go so many days without killing anybody. I was thinking, holy cow, I don't know if I handle that job, right? You know. And then the other buddy of mine, he used to climb this guy, we called him Hutch because he's as big as a, you know, his name's last name's Hutchinson. But the reason we called him Hutch, he's as big as a uh, armoire. Call him Hutch. And he climbed up those cranes and up the up on the sky rises and run cranes and building sky rises and stuff. That's what he did for a living. The reason I brought that up is both those jobs were unionized. Are a lot of the companies you buy, are they under unions and you're dealing with unions here or do you? We don't have any union work now. It, it's. The unions pulled out of the crane industry before our time, but yeah, we, you'll, you'll run into a couple like legacy businesses that have some union exposure, but even if it's, it's not every guy's in the union, there's a handful of people in okay. this, but it's not usually the whole company's not unionized, uh, but it's not a big part of our business. 
I was curious on how that would impact the acquisition and mergers. Like you also mentioned you bought an ESOP. Like that could be a whole nother show for me. It's like, how did you do that? What did it look like? <laughs> right. Because I mean, the employees own it. So do you buy the owner's share? Because a lot of times the owner only sells like 60 or 50 percent off to mm -hmm. the ESOP. So you buy the owner's share. I get that. But what do the employees do? They still, is there still an ESOP there? Or did you buy them all it's, out? Uh, you, you have a lot of flexibility and there's a lot of different ways to approach it. This acquisition was actually before Steel, it was outside of Steel River. But um, okay. you, in, this, in that situation, we did retire the ESOP, but we actually created a common share program, like an employee pool to replace it in a lot of ways. But it's a, you're just hurting a lot of people. It's really nice when the ESOP has one representative that kind of speaks for everyone. It just adds a lot of paperwork and it's more time consuming down the stretch because you have to get everyone sign off. You have to have the right valuations done. You have to make sure there's a lot of additional hurdles to jump over to make sure you don't violate any issues there. But yeah, that's what it, I was it adds complexity. One of the things that keeps coming to my mind is that, you know, I'm thinking of all the places the big cranes are. What's the biggest crane you guys do? You guys get into the ports at all? Like uh, Tulsa has a, Catusa has a port authority. A lot of these places have these big port, port authorities that move. Like what I'm in is this podcast studio is actually a, a shortened shipping container. Yeah. So this, I converted it into yeah. a podcast studio. So it's mobile. Yeah, it's a different line of business than we're in. The port cranes okay. are heavily specialized. And we've, we've talked about it, but it would honestly be like adding a whole nother division to okay. what we do today. It's different certifications, different regulatory body. But yeah, it's outside of our scope, but we're very interested in it. It's, it's great, great business. But again, you would you often run into the unions when it comes yeah, to the that's port very business. Everyone's in the longshoremen. So like, we haven't crossed that road yet, but we have talked to a few owners that are in the space and we have a friend that bought one, bought one, and it's gone really well for him. So uh, it's just a different business. That's a good friend you have because you can go, hey, I know you're talking, yeah. we do acquisitions, but have you heard of this merger thing? Why don't you come underneath our umbrella here? <laughs> yeah, we, but, and like we send a lot of work his way. Like whenever we have port inquiries, like we, it, it is a great relationship. So it's a great way to send referrals his way yeah. as well. It's just, it's outside our scope. I'll admit, one of the reasons I know a lot about your crane business is one of the businesses I was raising money for and, and didn't pull the trigger on was a storage play where industrial, instead of doing storage for homeowners, it was an industrial storage. I was yeah. looking at a big commercial lot, putting a gravel field down, putting ways to move shipping containers on there. And then a lot of in these heavy manufacturing areas, especially in the oil and gas space, they have equipment they don't need year around or during down cycles, but they don't want to get rid of it. They paid for it. They've already manufactured. They've either manufactured it and need to hold on to it because it's a slow order, meaning they need to have them when people need them, but they don't need to store them in their own warehouse. So what we always looking for is like putting shipping containers in a yard and leasing those out to manufacturing companies. They call ahead, their truck shows up, we load the truck up with a container and they go. So I was looking into what would it take to build something like that out. And unfortunately, the city I wanted to do it in, the, the city planner's like, yeah, that's ugly. We don't want it over there. You're going to see that over any fence you build. We don't see a bunch of, you know, they kept thinking this vision of a bunch of rusty containers. But I, that's one of the reasons I knew a little bit about that, like, you know, what the equipment was and stuff, because I looked at two or three different things that would require that. Yeah, when you have to go through the city, you're you got a whole another series of hoops to jump through. It's yet another reason why I'd rather buy a company than build one, because it seems like every time you build one, it's like we've got all these obstacles to go through. And uh, the only reason I was going to build that is I think it's needed. I know of some places that are like 
I know some manufacturing companies have got a few of those shipping containers stacked up in their own backyard, but they, they just need the space to store inventory that they need, you know, every time the site, the, the industry cycles up or they have hot shot, shot services that only need to run a part out to somewhere, you know, every six months they need one of those, but they don't want them stacked up in their own facility because they have other stuff to do. Right. Talk about kind of what's, what's next for you guys uh, as far as you, you, you kind of mentioned this earlier about building out the team and stuff. So you got the team built out. Are you going to go for continuing just building, buying the 10, $15 million or less, or are you going to go for a, the minnow swallows the well? You got visions on, you know, buying a big dog out there? Absolutely. I mean, we're, we obviously remain opportunistic around what fits and mm-hmm. the one we try to be very disciplined around what we actually buy and making sure it's a win-win deal for everyone involved. Like in our industry, it's reputation is everything and your, your character goes with you. So we try to always behave in the favor of the owner, even when it's in doubt. And cause it, your reputation will catch up to you. And if we're going to be at this a long time, we want to make sure that we live into everything we say we do, uh, everything we say we will do. Yes. I would love to buy because it, it's amazing. Sometimes the little ones are more of a, challenge than the larger ones. So to put more capital to work um, in one swing is always preferred. There's a couple deals that we're circling or spending a lot of time with that are north of 40 million of revenue. That would be a a great piece of the puzzle for us. Um, But at the same time, like we love the the deals in that five to 10 million of revenue range, like where we can get to know the owners, we can get to know every single employee during the process. And it's really is a sweet spot for us. And so I think we'll continue to play there and be aggressive and build. The, the nice part about playing for a really long time is that we're building relationships that that acquisition might not have come to fruition for five or 10 years. But if we have a relationship and we continue to get to know each other, when that day finally comes, Hopefully we're, we're there and we're in the position to, to do the deal and the seller's already comfortable with us. They're, we're working on a deal that should close in February where we've known the owner for three years now. He's just now ready. So like fostering those long-term relationships is a huge piece of the strategy where it's like, just be a good actor, continue to share deals, share leads with these people and build genuine relationships where they get to know you and we get to know them. And it makes it that much easier when the deal actually is ready to go through. So we're big believers in that. So that's one huge advantage of playing the long game. I can get that. I, I can really believe that. And a lot of people don't get that, that these industries are like little small towns. You grew up in a farming yeah. community and I grew up in one. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody and they all, they all go to the annual, so, you know, crane builders association or whatever. They're, they have ways that they meet and don't believe that they don't. Right. It's like, you know, do if you if you don't if you mistreat them or don't live up to your word if you make a promise you don't do the other side of it is these aren't these are blue collar workers this isn't your Ivy League guy who's used to being working with attorneys and stuff that are a little shady or whatever these guys expect you to live your word right they grew up in these small towns where your word is your bond you mess it over mess one of them over and they're going to be vocal so I like that you're paying attention to that making sure that. You stick to your commitments with that because it is going to affect you in the long game. If you were in and out of these in three years, that's a different story. But I'm a big believer, and I, I had this in the real estate space. I think we can operate in this space and do right by people and still make a hell of a living. And you don't have to be the corporate warrior type where we're going to go in and strip all the assets off, sell everything off, and basically rape and pillage for money. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think it's needed in any space, but uh, 
in this space particularly, I think that we can actually go out and save a lot of these businesses and create a legacy around them and, or like I say, create, but sustain the legacy they created and not have to, to do anything detrimental to that company. Ron, you hit on, you hit on something there that like resonates with Eric and I, as we thought about building Steel River, you talked about not being like an Ivy League education. And one of the things that's like near and dear to our heart is like these people, like growing up in a small town, like my parents did instill these values. And like at times when you're learning some hard lessons on the farm, you don't realize how grateful you'll be to your parents for those things that they pass along to you today and how you can actually build these connections. But when we looked at these people are, are down to earth, they're logical, they're reasonable. And there's been this stigma out there that you have to go to college to like have a great career and a great livelihood. And the one thing that's nice about our trade is highly specialized. These guys can do things that I didn't even know were possible when you guys get, so you see them work on the the electronics inside these trains. And um, our goal is to make this a career where they can build some long-term wealth. One, granted, we're trying to do that through the equity program, but also they are actually see upward mobility. And it doesn't have to be a college degree to go and provide for your family and have an absolute stellar life. Where and it shouldn't be, and we think that that has ripple effects throughout society. Like if we're creating a blue collar environment that actually people are happy to work and they're happy to come to work every day, they go home, they have a better relationship with their wife and their kids, the community's better, their kids are better at school. So, I mean, every action plays into that. And it doesn't need to be this college degree to have a great career. And so that's something we're trying to build. So you hit on something that we think about it is really close to what we're trying to do. And you're enabling people to stay close to to home too, right? If you think Mm -hmm. about growing up in a small town, like I grew up in Kellyville, graduated from Sepulpa, Oklahoma, a very small town. I think our Kellyville has still has a population of under a thousand, right? But, uh, you know, that small town, like one of the problems around here is the only work is the hotels and the restaurants and the, there's not, there's like, there's no work here. If there was a little manufacturing, all the mining communities have kind of gone. There's old mines and logging communities that used to be here. But for a lot of these com- towns, like you're talking about, you acquired something in Kiefer. Yeah. That town probably has a population of a thousand people. It's a small town, right? The people that worked in that fa- factory probably live 20 miles from there. They grew up there. They're happy to stay home. It's where they want to raise their kids. You're providing a service to that community. You're providing income and taxes to the local community and everything. It's important that these companies survive and, and go there. And without guys like you out there buying them, without guys like me out there looking to acquire some of them, they're going to go away, Right. Every business has an exit plan, <laughs> right? Every right, business owner is going to eventually exit. He might go to sleep on his desk one last time, but <laughs> you know, put his head down on his desk and not come back up. But eventually we all exit. And there's so many businesses out there currently that are the owner operating it. They're at or beyond retirement age. And the only reason they haven't done it, or haven't, haven't made the, the transition and selling is because they just don't know how to, or they haven't found the right person. And the business you mentioned in Kiefer, that owner, uh, he, I hope he doesn't mind, but he's he's over 70 years old and he, he spent a lot of time thinking about that transition. He spent a lot of time doing his homework on us and we're still close with him today and he's been a great advocate for us. But those are his friends and family and to that, to your point, small community, like yeah. they're like, he goes, I have a duty to them. They've been with yeah. some of his employees have been there 30 years. So like... It's amazing. And now you're seeing their, their kids starting to work in the business there. And he was he was phenomenal to us and treated us so well. And, that, and when we look at that, we've walked into a great situation where 
one, the people were loyal and they believed in what we were doing and they trusted the owner to hand it over to us. And like, we were able to bring in new energy with the same great foundation and the business has seen instant uplift just from new energy, but you had such a strong foundation to build on and it was an easy transition, but you're right. I mean, I would look, I'd have to go back and do it, the, the actual numbers, but the average age is close to 70 um, on the acquisitions that we've done over the last three years. Yeah, they're at that point now where they're just looking for that safe pair of hands that's going to carry on that legacy and their employees are going to be taken care of. And yeah, they want a fair price, but you know, yeah, I like I said, I've interviewed you, over you 200 clear, people. Yeah, you got to clear that hurdle. But yeah. like it, but I mean, a lot of these owners, like I'm not saying we're, we're ever going to pay the same price as private equity. They underwrite it. They have a different underwriting model, but mm-hmm. when we're the right fit and their values align and that we are offering a different service than value maximization in many cases, but we're still clearing the, the bar to get them to a happy, healthy retirement. Um, so I think we are paying a fair price, but we're not going to go and compete with private equity type multiples. So it's, it, it's a different model. We just have to be the right buyer for them. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate you being here. I think you're doing a great service out there. I think that uh, you picked out, I've interviewed some cool people. You're in the crane business. I've interviewed guys that, one of the guys I interviewed, he buys up foundries. They actually pour steel and make the molds to do that. You think that business was going away? He's like, no, there's still a big need for it here in the United States. They make the sand molds and other molds and and do the first runs and stuff of things. I've interviewed a guy who manufactures a a device that sorts shrimp. Like, I didn't know there was a, big, a quarter million dollar device that sets in a factory that, that they pour all the shrimp you catch in there and it sorts it based off size and weight and all that. Wow. Right. Never knew that existed. He sells them all around the world. So I've run into some really interesting people. I appreciate every one of you guys going out there and, and taking these companies that it would, it'd be okay. I mean, you're young. The, the sexy thing to do is go get yourself a SaaS and get higher <laughs> profit margins and, you know, and be in the I'm tech not smart world. enough for that, Ron. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I am either. I used to be in the computers. That said, um, thank you for what you're doing. Let's do the last bit here. Let's do two things. Somebody could only think of three, you know, remember three things from this show. What would you have the takeaways be as far as they're out there doing their mergers and acquisitions and they, they want to learn something from you today? What would you want them to learn? Team first. Build great team. Like know your shortcomings and just be open and honest about them and go hire the best people you possibly can even if that means what you think is overpaying, we would be nowhere without the team. And I think that a lot of times people, especially if you buy small, you can try to cut corners on that and save money. It's like, oh, we'll just get someone that can sit in the seat, go and pay up for the absolute right person and then build, give them a reason to stay, give them a story to believe in. So that would be one team, team first and foremost. And then next is think, play the, I I mean, not everyone has the time to play the long game, but think, Think longer term. We think that thinking what, in what the decade. What are you trying to say? Hey, <laughs> you got me. You got me. I'm uh, just saying. I have a long, one I have a long about term that not everyone has. I mean, I can't play the thirty-year game. Come on, man. No, I'm, I mean, I'm hey, good with you that. Got to take care of yourself. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So, I think it uh, makes. We think it makes better. Like, it, even if you're thinking long term, like even if you're not playing a true long game, if you think long term, it actually should improve short term decision making. I love it. I love it. And then what does it need? What can our audience do for you? Is there's one thing we could do um, to help you, you know, continue on this path of success you're already blazing? What can the audience do to help you out? 
Yeah, the, t- the two biggest things that we're always looking for is, is talented people. In, inside the crane space, inside industrial services, we are growing our holding company that supports the divisions below it. So hiring is a huge one. If there's ever talented people that are looking to get into this type of world, we're, we're hiring consistently across the board. And then three, like if you have a founder in need that is looking for a different type of solution than private equity, uh, we're buying anything in the industrial space. Obviously, cranes, we're, we're hot and heavy on anything lifting related, but uh, we love doing mergers and acquisitions and we love providing that alternative home that may, most people some people don't know we exist and we don't know we're out there. So you just got to find the right home for your business. But spreading the word about, I appreciate what you're doing, Ron, having people like myself on, like we, we always want to pay it forward. So getting a chance to talk about what we do and we're always happy to help others along the way as well. It's, we, there is a net, there's a huge shift going on in the ownership of business. You have retiring founders and you need a new generation that's going to be good stewards of what those people built. Awesome. Well, I appreciate having you here today. What's the best way people can reach out and contact you? Yeah, my, my email is my name, Austin at steelriver.co. So CO. Okay. And then we have your LinkedIn. We'll put that in the show notes too, if you want me Sounds to. Great. That'd awesome. be great. We'll call that a show. Hang out for a few minutes and uh, we'll call that a show today. I don't want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now